Legacy Legal Live is a show dedicated to helping you put your estate plans together and answering all the questions that come up around it before it's too late. The ladies of Legacy Legal Planning in Norwell, Massachusetts are always here to help you and can be found online at LegacyLegalPlanning.com or by calling 781-971-5900. Here are your hosts, Elizabeth Caruso, Michelle Reed, and Kendra O'Toole. Good evening. Thank you for joining us this evening on Legacy Legal Live here on WMEX Boston. You have here with you this evening, Kendra O'Toole and Elizabeth Caruso. And we are so excited that you've decided to listen to our radio show. And we're doing something a little different this evening to talk about some celebrities and some of the estate planning mistakes or unfortunately maybe failures that have caused some issues for their loved ones, for their families, and most likely did not provide for the wishes that they really intended for. So we're going to jump right in first today with... Um, talking about Lisa Marie Presley, you know, she's the daughter of Elvis Presley, who also had some estate planning issues when it came to minimizing some taxes and having his wishes followed. I know he had initially appointed his father as the executor of his estate to handle his affairs. But when he passed away, he was not um, you know, he's elderly and sick and not able to handle it. And so then that kind of opens the doors for other people to get involved, sometimes third parties, which then leads into a little bit of Lisa Marie's situation. Um, you know, she did end up having ownership of Graceland and 15% of Elvis Presley Enterprises within her own trust. So she did have a trust in place. Um, she had set up her mother as successor trustee if something were to happen to Lisa in that event. Um, and then she made some changes that um, kind of came to the forefront when she did pass away. Liz, would you like to touch base on some of that? Yeah. So in 2016, Lisa Marie made an amendment to her trust, removing Priscilla as the successor trustee and appointing her daughter, uh, Riley. And it is questionable, and this is now since settled out of court, so the question may never be answered. Um, but it is questionable as to whether or not that amendment was done properly, um, pursuant to the terms of the trust, um, whether or not it was like legally signed based on you know whether it was um, a valid trust amendment, um, and whether or not notice was actually given to Priscilla pursuant to the terms of the trust as um, a successor trustee. Now, it it's usually the terms of the trust that dictate how amendments are performed. So you go to the section that says in the trust how a trust is allowed to be amended, and then you follow the rules from there. Uh, it's usually pretty easy to amend a revocable trust if you follow the rules. Um, I haven't read the trust. Kendra hasn't read the trust. And I don't think the trust was submitted to court because it didn't have to be because they ended up settling. <laughs> so we don't know what the actual rules were to be followed. But um, Priscilla eventually, after um, after Lisa Marie passed away, filed a petition in court to have 
the uh, amendment to um, wiped away and invalidated because she didn't believe that it was done accurately. And she also didn't believe that her granddaughter Riley would be able to handle the job as trustee because this trustee is now running Graceland, uh, which I can imagine is a huge operation. It's a big, um, a big tourist uh, place to go. What's the word I'm looking for? Attraction. Attraction. <laughs> it's a big tourist attraction. Um, and you know, that's a, you know, there's millions and millions of dollars going through Graceland every year. And then you've also got, 15% of Elvis Presley enterprises, which I can imagine is also a whole lot of money. So, you know, whether or not Riley is a fit trustee, I don't know, but they decided to, um, they decided to settle outside of court and money talks apparently. <laughs> right. And some of the settlement, Priscilla got a lump sum and she's also staying on as an advisor and getting paid monthly, which I mean, that's more fees and, you know, more money spent from the estate that maybe wouldn't have been had to been spent if it was done according to plan. Correct. So, I mean, I kind of have to question that, you know, what was, what were Priscilla's real motives here? Like, did she really want to still be in charge or did she want to make sure that she wasn't cut out of the process? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And kind of have a little cushion for her lifestyle Correct. going forward. Correct. Um, Cause I know like, obviously a, a lot of our listeners know the story of Priscilla and Elvis and that um, Priscilla is actually Lisa Marie's mother, but Elvis's ex-wife, they had divorced before he passed away. And, um, you know, she was cut out of a lot of his estate because they were, in fact, divorced. And Lisa Marie got the bulk of it, which is why Lisa Marie's trust now owns Graceland. So, you know, there's a whole lot of, you know, this led to this, led to this, led to this, that we can circle back to, you know, Elvis's original estate plan. You know, had Elvis done his estate plan to you know properly take into account estate taxes or had he done in his estate plan to you know pick the correct not not correct may not be the correct right term but like to pick a better uh executor than his ailing father you know to make a make changes and update his estate plan based on his current circumstances after he you know divorced priscilla maybe we wouldn't be seeing things like this happening. There were a lot of people that got involved in the sense of business managers and, you know, other people stepping in as trustees to manage these funds, um, even from Elvis's passing. And just to see all that money go to those types of fees can really be devastating because, as you mentioned, Elvis is still, I mean, the Elvis Presley Enterprises, they are still making a boatload of money. Elvis is still played everywhere. There are still people, you know, trying to be Elvis in the sense he's of he's still you know, a household name. He died, right. you know, fifty years ago, and he's still a household name today, even to little kids. <laughs> Absolutely, we we have little ones in my family that listen to him as well, and yeah, it's it's something that if, like you said, kind of handled a little more. In a better way. They did try to take steps, you know, um, especially with Lisa Marie's having a trust and having these in place, but not all the steps were 
actually followed. And so I guess a little bit of, we're going to talk about little lessons here and there today of different things, uh, lessons to take from each celebrity that we'll talk today. So I think one of the lessons from Lisa Marie's situation is even when you do have an estate plan and you've done it, it doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to play out how you want. And there can still be issues because there are always going, unfortunately, there can always be somebody that wants to kind of have an in or be a part of it and have control that may not be that person that should. It doesn't matter how well your estate plan is written. You can't stop people from suing. (laughs) People, I mean, you know, just by listening to the news today that people can sue anybody for any reason. And that, that includes your estate plan. (laughs) I think it actually opens the door for people wanting to sue even more because they, I think it's an easier I don't want to say it's an easier burden because it's not whatsoever, but I think people view it as a little easier because there's an easier connection. Oh, I'm their child or Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, the, the niece or the nephew. It's an easier way to find a connection versus yes, we hear about those slip and falls or Mm -hmm. injured by at a workplace or at a store or something. There's an easier connection to try to say, Hey, I should have a stake in this versus you know, and an, of a course, lot I should manage my grandchildren's money. I, I, I'm their grandmother. They can't manage their own money, right? I think it just gives more straws for people to try mm-hmm. to grab at versus just a, you know, a regular lawsuit and trying to hold somebody liable. Right, right. Uh, All right. Our next celebrity, don't do this at home. <laughs> that we're going to talk about is Aretha Franklin. And this is another one that has been in the news really recently because this just settled, I think, a few months ago. Um, Aretha Franklin, when she passed away, had two different handwritten wills. (laughs) Um, One that had um, split her assets between um, two of her sons. And then a period of time later, Another was found in her couch cushions with some amendments that split between three of her sons. And um, if either of these two wills were thrown out, a fourth son would have also inherited under Michigan law. So (laughs) doing my research, I might have been, you know, looking at some of this, that fourth son, it does seem like he might have been involved somehow. But he okay. wasn't he wasn't one involved in the suing. You gotcha. know, he kind of was just like, whatever, this is what it is. And three of them all had different ideas of what they thought should happen. So this went on for five years. And eventually it was found that the couch will <laughs> with the handwritten scribbles was actually her final last will and testament. Um, which is amazing to me that a like a handwritten document was ultimately determined to be her last will over a an estate. I don't know how much her estate is worth because I think there was quite a lot of tax issues involved with her estate. Um, but I, I, it's amazing to me that like something found between two couch cushions is what's going to rule the day. Not only that, it was in a notebook from what it seems like it was in a notepad with lots of like 
names scratched out or amounts and percentages scratched out. So it wasn't even a beautifully handwritten, redone, you know, sign it, this is what I want type of paper. And it it blows my mind that that even was withheld that not, I would have thrown out both of them. In my opinion, I would have said, we're going to throw out well, both I mean, of these handwritten documents and we're going to go under the laws of intestacy, which is having no will. And what does the state say happens? And, and I mean, this goes to the, you know, the laws of Michigan are clearly different than the laws of Massachusetts, because in Massachusetts, these wouldn't fly. In Massachusetts, you need to have, it can be handwritten, but you need to have two witnesses to a will. And without the witnesses, you don't have a valid will. And, um, you know, so these handwritten in the notebook documents would just not fly here in Massachusetts at all, um, which it it's good that you need to have that level of, um, we'll call it authenticity to something so final and so important. Um, I know a lot of people get bogged down with a lot of our red tape and administrative issues here in Massachusetts, but they're there for a reason. So that, you know, litigation doesn't go on for five years over two notepads, one found in a couch. <laughs> and it went to trial. There was a two-day trial with a jury. And the jury found that the couch one was the valid. I mean, to go through that process and to really drag it out that long they have to i was just looking it up real quick it looks like she was worth 80 million when she passed away mm -hmm. i don't know how much that would have been worth after but between the state taxes and then all those legal fees and court hearings and everything i would say they lost at least 50 to 60 percent of the worth of that estate probably probably and i know that they're i remember reading about the fact that they were back taxes owed by her estate before she passed away so wow yeah it's it's so, crazy <laughs> lesson learned from this one do your will pursuant to the state laws in your state and um, execute it properly so that there <laughs> is no question as to where whether your will is properly ex executed or not probably don't handwrite it that's not a good starting point and if you do have to, make sure it's witness. <laughs> I was going to say, preferably with an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> that is the preference and the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> oh, you know, definitely a big lesson here of don't do it on your own. I think there's so much in the world today of DIY. Everyone's so, I can, I can do my estate plan myself. I can refurbish you know this furniture by myself i can redo my bathroom i can we are in this youtube generation. can teach me to do anything <laughs> right we really are at this point of i can figure out how to do it on my own but there are such large consequences to doing your own estate plan versus sanding down a piece of furniture you know and so it really is i think a huge lesson to Remind everyone that you should work with an attorney to do a proper will and a state plan. Mm -hmm. All right. And you probably don't want a will. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> and the thing is, if you meet with the right attorney and you have those conversations with them, 
they should be guiding you as what is best for you. There are some instances where a will might cover it, but those are some slim instances. And there's a lot of other legwork that leads up to that actually happening. And I can guarantee you without having to really look at this, that if Aretha Franklin had four children and only three of them are benefiting from her estate based on her handwritten will, she definitely should have had a trust that dictated the specific terms of how she wanted her estate to be paid out so that it would be clear and wouldn't end up in, in this probate mess because she could have clearly disinherited the fourth son and taking care of the other three or the other two, whichever, you know, what she wanted ultimately to happen. And it would have been a much easier process outside of the probate court than the mess that was created. Yeah, there was definitely disproportionate shares there. And and also just not to be public. I mean, to have that open to the public and for them to kind of, I, I think for all these celebrities, we're going to learn that this leads to it being in the public eye and you might feel, well, I'm not a celebrity, so it's not really the public eye, but it is. I know we talked about this on our last show. It is out there for people to look at your neighbors, your friends, family, and they can really see how much your loved ones are actually receiving from you. Mm -hmm. And so it is public and it's not just for the celebrities of, Oh, this is a public issue. It is public for anybody that's in that in that scenario. And it's not just your friends and family. It can be your creditors. So your creditors can start doing searches as, uh, for inheritances and find, oh, look, Sally, who we were picking on last week, <laughs> is now inheriting $100,000. Well, she owes me ten grand. Now I'm going to sue Sally. Absolutely. All right, next celebrity that we're going to talk about this evening is Marlon Brando. So his estate plan was written. He did have written plans. So he took some action, but he also then made oral promises to his housekeeper, his long-term housekeeper, to leave her the house and that he was going to leave it for her. She could live there. It was going to become her property. But he never actually wrote this in his plan. And so when he passed away, she had put in a claim saying that she was supposed to get the house and that it was a gift to her and that he just never took the actual legal steps to make that happen. And she thought $627,000 plus $2 million in punitive damages. She apparently felt like she was hurt in some way and that the heirs should be punished due to their actions of not giving her that home and that she deserved another $2 million. And this is another one that did settle outside of court. It didn't have to go to that trial and jury and whatnot. And they settled for $125,000. But if Marlon had actually put his wishes in writing, if it was his intent to leave to the housekeeper, then that should have been put in writing to ensure that she got that asset, that there was some discussion about whether 
it was supposed to, he was going to deed it during lifetime and that didn't happen, but that opens up a whole nother can of worms with taxes. And so he really should have put it in his plan properly for her to have inherited it when he passed away. Um, but instead he just kept these oral promises and that goes back again to the last week's show. I believe it was that we talked about caregivers or leaving your home to somebody that maybe lived with you and you're telling them, I want you to have this home. You're going to have this home, but then never put it in writing. And when that's not put in writing, it is not withheld. I think they settled for $125,000 to just end it and move on. And she probably, unfortunately, was told by probably many attorneys that she was not going to get anything. Oral promises mean nothing. And to take the 125 k and be happy with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this oral promises lead to so many litigation issues because, you know, this is clearly, you know, a celebrity home, but it can be something even much smaller than that. You know, mom promised me to give me the, you know, this painting that has been in the family for X amount of years, or dad promised me to give me his antique tool collection or, you know, insert object here. This promise was made, but was never written down. How do you enforce that? You know, you, you, you have no proof whatsoever other than, you know, that your person said it to you, but nobody else heard it. And how do you, how do you prove that? And you know, it's really unfortunate that a lot of distributions come down to, well, that might be what they wanted, but they never actually put it in writing. And therefore, it's not what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen is what's in writing. And that's what you have to go by, you know, as the a personal representative, you know, distributing out the estate. If it ends up in court, that's what the judge has to go by is what's in the document. You know, they have no other outside of, you know, other evidence that's presented during trial. They don't have anything else to go by as to what was the, you know, testator's intent. That really goes to, you know, having it in writing legally the way that it should be. I think that I'm sure, Liz, you've come across clients that say this, too. They say, oh, I've started to put some sticky notes on my tangible property in my home for, you know, who I want it to go to. But that's not legal. If they really have that intent of this family portraits going to my daughter or my tea sets going to my other daughter, that needs to be written down in a legal manner. And they've made it a little easier in Massachusetts that you can now do a memorandum. You don't have to go update your plan every time you might buy something new that you want to give to somebody. You can use this memorandum instead, but it needs to be in writing. It needs to be connected to your will or trust, and it needs to be signed and dated. And generally, in our terms of our trust, we put that the most recent dated memorandum is the one that is going to be followed. So that way you don't have that issue of, well, there's 10 memorandums here and some of them all mention the same thing. And then some things get added in and she changed the tea set from going to Susie to, you know, to Elizabeth. (laughs) And so it allows for better planning and actually having your wishes followed through. And so in writing doesn't just mean a sticky note or a scribbled piece of paper. And I think I've told these horror stories before, like 
even the most well-intentioned families that get along, what happened? Like something could happen in the house with the sticky notes. Like I've had houses that um, where somebody passed away and then there was a pipe that burst and flood everything. And then the sticky notes were part of the flood. So then nobody knew who was getting what because the sticky notes were just floating in inches of water. <laughs> or you could have, you know, some, you know, maleficent or malicious and maleficent. There's my Disney slip for today. That's yeah, that is your Disney slip. <laughs> Some malicious intent with people and you start moving around sticky notes. I've heard, I've, you know, I've heard of families doing that too, like switching notes because, you know, I don't actually want this painting. I want that instead because it's worth more money and, you know, ridiculous things like that. But this is, this is what ends up in litigation. This is what ends up in the probate court. So when you do what, put your intentions in writing, they are followed much better than oral promises <laughs> it's so lesson there <clears throat> don't don't just write it down <laughs> right don't just talk the talk walk the walk to the attorney to put it in writing mm -hmm. and and sticky notes are very helpful but not in this instance oh <laughs> uh, one more quick one uh before our our break is um I'll talk really quickly about James Gandolfini because he has a pretty straightforward issue that he did. Um, he obviously was on The Sopranos, which is a lot of people's, you know, greatest television show of all time. Um, he, I believe, died either in New York or New Jersey, which, go ahead. I believe, and actually I had an interesting point that I was going to bring up later too with this one. I believe he was actually on vacation in Italy when he had his heart Oh, that's right. He was, he was, but he was a resident of either New York or New yes. Jersey, um, which is, which matters because they have, you know, or used to have estate taxes um, that were, you know, higher than the national average. So James Gandolfini only had a will. And in his will, he gave 20% of his estate to his wife and 80% to other people, including his children, which is wonderful. Um, except that that 80% or whatever actual percentage that went to his children was now subject to generation skipping taxes. And then his entire estate, because he only had a will and didn't do any tax planning and was and died in either New York or New Jersey, somebody can correct me on this, was subject to estate taxes, which combined with the federal estate tax at the time, led to 55% of his estate being paid in estate taxes. Not that I that um, an attorney could have made all of that go away, but they certainly could have minimized that estate tax impact as much as possible. Um, there are ways that you can split up assets among spouses to distribute out the impact. You can create certain types of irrevocable trusts, depending upon how the estate is um, comprised you know what types of counts or policies and things like that and you know you can get creative with your planning and make it so that estate estate taxes don't hit 55 percent of the estate um you know actually i'm going to throw in one more as a joke on this one uh, and you know since we're talking about james gandolfini and he died either in new york or new jersey there's the big joke with um Steinbrenner, who used to own the Yankees, who died in 2010, 
the one year there was no federal estate tax. So the man who owned the New York Yankees was so lucky. That is good timing. That he died the one year there was no federal estate tax. So, I mean, that's the other side of the James Gandolfini issue is James Gandolfini happened to die when estate taxes were a much lower threshold than they are today. Today's federal estate tax is pushing $13 million. Not now, I assume, without looking this up, that James Gandolfini had more than $13 million and he would have paid federal estate tax anyways. But, you know, back when he died, it was half that, if not less. So it goes to show you that tax planning is very, very important in um, estate planning in general, but especially in Massachusetts, where we have such a low estate tax threshold. Our estate tax threshold is $2 million. And that was doubled two months ago. It used to be $1 million. <laughs> and Which you know, isn't much it, here. No, it's not. Not with home values, not with, um, you know, retirement planning and things that we have here. I mean, even families of the most modest means who bought their houses in the right places and, the you know, the equity has grown and grown and grown their house alone could be pushing a million dollars. And that was, you know, creating an estate tax issue. Now it's 2 million, which is still pretty low. Yeah. Little interesting fun fact about his as well is that the, where he passed away in Italy, he was at his, he has a home there and he had intended to have the home be split um, between his first son and then his daughter Liliana but Italy has rules that supersede so many things and really actually does have a forced airship for lack of better terms in Massachusetts you don't have to leave to family you don't have to leave to children there is no straight and fast this is what you have to do but in Italy it is required that 50% of it had to go to his children 25% of it went to his wife and then he could only decide where that remaining 25% went. Um, So that's all that he could really dictate by his will, even though he wanted it to be split between his two children, the Italy law trumps that and required that it be split in that way. So they don't allow you to kind of keep out certain people. And for the most part, I think most states um, in Massachusetts in the U.S. do have kind of these laws that, you know, you don't have to leave for children. There's no inherent right that just because you had children, that you have to provide for them. Um, and so it's very interesting that that is a law in Italy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of um, other countries have laws like that. Um, I have had cases where people have died overseas or um, they had property here but we're actually residents of other nations and it's not uncommon for forced inheritances to to be a thing and you're listening to legacy legal live on wmex boston you have with you this evening kedra o'toole and elizabeth caruso if you're just tuning in we have been speaking about some celebrities that unfortunately had some issues with their estate planning or lack of thereof that had caused some issues for their loved ones. And so we are going to pick up where we left off 
We went over a few celebrities such as Lisa Marie Presley, Aretha Franklin, Marlon Brando, and James Gandolfini. And now we're going to pick up with James Brown to talk a little bit about exactly what his estate plan looked like and kind of what failed in that situation. Um, so just what he did, he did leave specific um, instructions that he left his copyright of his music to an educational foundation. He left his tangible personal property to his children. And then he left $2 million to educate his grandchildren. And it turns out that within his will and his plan, there was quite a bit of ambiguous language in his documents, which actually allowed his girlfriend and her children to step in and sue, which then turned into six years of litigation and millions of dollars in estate taxes as well. Um, where he had those estate tax issues, I would say that he probably just didn't properly plan for the estate tax issues because more common than not, those come up when you are in a high um, asset level and you don't properly make some plans to at least minimize the estate tax, um, especially when you have the assets that these celebrities have. There's usually no way to eliminate. No, <laughs> you can not at, least, at this level. <laughs> right. But you can at least try to help minimize them a bit. Um, or you die then, in 2010 like George Steinbrenner. <laughs> exactly. You, you hope to have that luck. <laughs> but that is pure luck for sure. Mm -hmm. And and it's not trying to, you know, say, oh, luck that it happened that in that sense, you know, we never want to lose somebody. But that was pretty lucky for the, the inheritance that was received by his family to not have those state taxes. Um, but in James Brown's situation, you know, he made these wishes but he had a lot of that ambiguous language that then allowed others that really had no um no bloodline connection you know and they were able to step in there i didn't get to read the actual document but there must have just been some language that somehow included them but was unclear and so it allowed them to kind of open the door and try to grasp at those straws that i talked about earlier to then be able to receive some sort of inheritance um, from him. And so with this, you know, lesson from James Brown is to be clear and direct in your plan. And I think that's the best thing about trust planning is that, you know, you can be very, very specific with who you want to inherit, who, who you might not want to inherit, who you want to be sure that you are saying, I'm not including this person on purpose, you know, who you want to be in charge, how you want them to distribute things. Is it all at once to everybody? Is it certain ages, certain percentages? Are there certain qualifications that need to be done? So the beauty of a trust is that you really can get into that detailed nitty gritty of your wishes and, and be sure that they're followed as long as you're clear and direct. If you leave things kind of loosely open or you use words that are not specifically defined, a lot of times in our trust, we have a definition section. An heir is this, a beneficiary is this. And it's specific of exactly who falls under those terms. And without that, you are opening the door for other people to try to step in. 
Yeah, I can only imagine what the language was that uh, that allowed a girlfriend and her children to come in. But I mean, this this goes to show that you should go to and I don't know who wrote James Brown's will and trust, but like make sure you go to an attorney who does this on a regular basis, who who is specializes in estate planning and elder law because the language used in other areas of the law may not carry over to the to the you know terminology used in estate planning and that's where you can get some of these ambiguities you know it's possible that james brown had his estate plan written by maybe his business manager who was an attorney or you know a contracts attorney or somebody like that who doesn't typically you know draft estate plan documents and that can be a real problem because you're you know, you're not using the, ter- you're using a legal term that might have a couple of meanings and, you know, it's in, in, in an industry term that can be, you know, flipped upside down and wreak havoc. And so I think this really goes to show that, and, and I think it comes down to normal people having this feeling as well. And I mean, normal is and not a celebrity, um, you know, those here in, in Massachusetts that are the working class and have, have, you know, raised funds and assets and they want to leave an inheritance. I find it very common that we hear people say, oh, my son-in-law's sister is a corporate attorney for whatever company in Boston. And she says she can write my will. And that might be the case, but most likely if somebody's not practicing and specializing, as you mentioned in, in estate planning and elder law, they are most likely using some sort of template that they've received from either the firm they work at or another firm. And they're kind of, filling in some spaces and they're not necessarily taking into account exactly all the issues that could pop up with your plan and why a will may not be the best option. And so it is very easy for all of us to just say, oh, you know, I know so-and-so that can do this because they practice law. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just not unfortunately. Not Um, with something as broad as law. I mean, I make the analogy with doctors all the time. Like, do you want an orthopedic surgeon to do brain surgery for you? It might work, but are they the most specialized doctor to be able to be working on your brain? Probably not. (laughs) And that's that's not, that's not a slight to orthopedic surgeons. That's not a slight to, you know, brain surgeons. It's not a slight to estate planning attorneys. It's not a slight to corporate attorneys. We're all good at what we're good at and we, you know, we should stick to our lanes. (laughs) There is too much to know out there. Mm -hmm, To know every field of law, it's not possible. I love when people come up to me, you're a lawyer, you must know this. No, I do not. I know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a common misconception of you're a lawyer, you must know this and you're right. It's just, it's something I learned to pass the bar 14 years ago. <laughs> and the laws probably changed. <laughs> yep. And There's changed probably been some nuance. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. It, it's, it's common. And so really 
you know, lesson there is to work with somebody that is focused specifically on estate planning and be clear and direct. All right. I was going to say our next, our next celebrity is Howard Hughes, who we all know uh, was played by Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie (laughs) 10 or so years ago. Have not Uh, seen it. (laughs) <laughs> I haven't seen it either. Um, but he was a uh, a very, very wealthy man back in the 30s and 40s. And he was an aerospace engineer who, you know, became a very important figure in the aviation industry and was one of the richest and most influential people in the world at the time. And, you know, had his own film making business and it, a a general jack of all trades back in the day who ended up amassing a $2.5 billion net worth when he died in the seventies. So, you know, what is that in today's dollars? (laughs) Um, And because of his, you know, his science background in aviation and, you know, his just general, like, I want to know all these things at all times. Um, he wanted most of his money to go to medical research, but he never did an estate plan. He never wrote down that he wanted all of his money to go to medical research or where he wanted his planes to go or his giant, um, uh, the, the big thing he built uh, on the West coast to house his planes. (laughs) So I did see one of his planes he gifted before he passed away, Mm -hmm. which was great, but right everything going after he did not account for correct so with that his estate was split pursuant to intestate distribution um which means that you did not have an estate uh to his 22 cousins so um when he died uh in i believe it was nevada at the time um the Nevada law said that it would be split amongst his 22 cousins. And that's who got his $2.5 billion instead of the, you know, whatever medical research foundation or, you know, college or whatever he wanted it initially to go to didn't get it because he didn't write it down. And this isn't even, you know, oral promises. This is like, like it may be in, passing or in like news interviews or something like that he had said i want to this is where i want my money to go and he just never sat down and did it lesson there plan ahead write it down yeah i mean with 2.5 billion dollars you can do literally whatever you want (laughs) and i mean who knew if who knows if he even met some of those cousins if he even knew all of them I have one cousin, so I don't know what that would be like, but 22 cousins. And when you have back then, I know a lot of the families did have, you know, 10 plus kids. You may not have had a relationship with all of those cousins. And so you can have a relationship with that many cousins as, as the oldest of 24 grandchildren, I can tell you that I can, you have a relationship with all of them. <laughs> he may not have though, because that's a lot. So like, you don't know, we don't know that people could have made out that haven't even talked to him since maybe they were kids. 
you know, you don't know where, which direction their life took. And, and so 22 people were able to benefit from that due to his lack of planning. And this would have been a lot of money that could have gone to some great medical research as he wanted if he actually had put it down in writing. All right. Next one, Michael Jackson. So he was worth at the time approximately 600 million and he did have a trust. He put together a trust, um, but he did not put anything in it. So it was an unfunded trust. And when you have an unfunded trust and unfortunately we've seen it, people come in and say, you know, here's my mom's trust and it's a pile of paper. And it's a very well-written trust. <laughs> very well-written trust. But then we look at the assets and everything was still in Michael's name. So the assets were never transferred into the trust, which then opened it up to the probate court. So it all became public information. It then became time-consuming, money and legal fees and court fees consuming, um, and more prone to fighting. Because where, again, you now have that open forum with the court, it then opens the door for different heirs and people to try to grab a straw and say that they're entitled. It so opens the door for predators, too, that wouldn't right. have otherwise been able to get at money if it had been already put into trust. Yeah. So if he had put everything in trust beforehand and done that legwork he got so far he did that trust and i think we might be probably there's some people that might be listening to this radio show that might be saying i have a trust are my assets in it go look look at your bank statement look at your beneficiaries of your different assets look at your home look at the deed for your home your tax bill might be a good place to start because usually if, as long as you didn't do it in the last year year and a half your tax bill usually will reflect who the current owner is of your property. Look at that. If you have a trust and you're thinking, I don't know if anything's in there, look at your assets and see mm -hmm. how they're titled. Are they in the name of the trust or are they in your name alone? And if they're in your name alone, you have some legwork to do. Yes, you do. Because, and and this is, I don't want to say it's the number one thing that we see, but like, this is one of the, one of the, most common issues that we see. So I had an, a client come in a couple months ago who had a trust written uh, maybe 10 or so years ago. And her trust was recorded with the registry of deeds. Her deed was never changed. Oh yeah. So she, no way. Yeah. So her trust, they went as far as recording her trust, but never changed her deed. So her house was in her maiden name she got married her trust was in her married name that she's now on her second marriage which were we were you know cleaning up the trust and you know making some changes and figured out that the house never got to the trust and i i don't know how many times i've gotten to clients have been like yeah um your house isn't in your trust it was never deeded so and the good sure thing that is happens. Right. Like sometimes when you come up for a review 10 years later, the good thing is if you're working with somebody that focuses on it, they will pick up on these things. And that was able to be fixed before she passed away. Mm -hmm. The worst is when you come in 
and you come in with mom's trust and mom's now passed away or dad's now passed away and the home is in their name alone. And that trust is just paper. It might funnel into the trust, but it won't funnel in there without the probate process. Mm -hmm. And so luckily review it now. If you have a trust, review your assets right now to be sure it's funded. (laughs) All right. So that's that lesson there. Fund your trust during your lifetime. All right. We probably have time for one or two more. So an interesting one that takes a little bit of a spin on, um, on this, uh, you know, what makes an estate plan, you know, what documents do you think of? We've been talking a lot about, you know, when people die and, you know, their wills and their trusts, but Etta James, who has long passed away, but she had an issue with her power of attorney. Um, she did a power of attorney when it was questionable as to whether or not she had capacity. And then because it was questionable as to whether or not she had capacity when the power of attorney was executed, the spending for her care during her end of life was actually the cause of litigation amongst her family members because it wasn't clear that one family member had the power of attorney to make these decisions on her behalf. And that opened the door for other family members and other people's opinions to come in and say, well, you know, Etta would have wanted X, Y, Z. Well, Etta told me she wanted ABC. Well, the power of attorney chose JKL, you know, and there's all of these issues that can come up when you waited too long to do the power of attorney. Um, we, or at least I always tell my clients, even if you have a valid power of attorney, if we're doing any type of an amendment or anything with your estate plan, we're going to do a new power of attorney just to make sure it's fresh, just to make sure there's no questions because, you know, I can tell by talking to you right now, you are competent and we're going to have a new one that's, you know, 10 years newer than your last one, just cause, because it's a good idea to have, um, a nice, fresh power of attorney. Um, because you don't want to get caught in a situation like this where it was probably too late. And, you know, once those questions start to arise, then you've, you've lost your opportunity to be able to avoid the probate court, which was the whole point of having the power of attorney to begin with. So with this power of attorney, she was still married at the time, her husband of 40 plus years, and she did that power of attorney and she ended up naming her son as the power of attorney. And so the husband was the one that was kind of creating those questions. And I think that this is valid. If you don't have the discussion with your loved ones of, I am naming my son or my child as that power of attorney because I don't want to put that responsibility on you right now. Or I think we both are having memory issues. Maybe, you know, you shouldn't serve in that position. Clearly there wasn't conversation before this. And capacity and lucidity is a tough thing. Somebody can have lucidity, you know, completely clear on that day. And so it may not have been wrong. It may have been properly executed and she might've had full capacity, but her husband obviously felt slighted or like somebody was trying to take advantage or, and who knows what, you know, brought that up, but there was something that triggered in his brain of this isn't right. And so it created that, that argument between them. 
And then, like you said, it created the argument for the spending on her care. And it's like, what a shame that the spouse and children, you know, can't come to an agreement of how mom's funds should be spent and how she she should get her proper care at end of life, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's too bad. And I mean, lucidity is such a interesting thing because you can have somebody who has you know, Alzheimer's or dementia or, you know, the beginning stages of those issues who has really, really good days and really, really bad days. And it, what matters is when you're signing the document. So, um, I had a client a couple years ago who, um, you know, was in the very early stages of dementia documented by medical records But when they came in to, you know, talk to me, they knew, you know, who their family was, what their assets were. They knew they were oriented to like time and place. They knew what year it was, what month it was, you know, they knew where they were. They knew who I was, what my purpose was. Well, that's somebody who's pretty lucid and I have no problem with them, you know, discussing their estate plan. And then they came back three months later and could still answer all the same questions when we did are signing. So, you know, just because they had a diagnosis of dementia didn't mean that they couldn't make their own decisions. So, you know, it's really the call of the person who's doing the notary and the witnessing at the time to be able to say, you know, this person knew what they were doing right then and there. So the lesson here, sign and do a power of attorney before you need it. Do that pre-planning, be ready for it so that when it is needed, you won't have these questions. And, and sometimes we see this with adult children. Someone thinks, oh, my sister was being nefarious because she brought my mom to an attorney to get this power, power of attorney done to be able to step in. And that's where, you know, a lot of this can be eliminated if you do your planning early and before it's needed. All right. Next one is Sunny Bono. So you all know him from Sunny and Cher, and he did not have a will. He did not put a plan in place, and he was married, and there ended up being a secret child out of wedlock that then had a claim to put in and, you know, was entitled to some of his share because it was a child out of wedlock, and There are a lot of state statutes do provide for children that are out of wedlock to ensure that nobody is, it's, I don't want to call it forced heirship because it's, it's not if you do a plan properly, Mm -hmm. but when you don't plan, then the state just thinks, okay, well, they would want to provide for, for all of their children, their children of their marriage and their children, not of their marriage. (laughs) Exactly. And so. This, if he did a plan, he could have provided fully 100% for his wife if that, if that was truly his wishes. And that's what his family thought because then this happened after. They didn't know about this child. Um, the article actually had said 
that Sonny was too busy to do his estate plan, but not too busy to secretly father a child out of wedlock. (laughs) So it was quite an interesting article to kind of put it that way of, you know, do your plan and make sure that you... (laughs) Attorney's hours and the the, the other hours may be different hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... Do, do a plan, you know, lesson of that one. If you want to be providing for certain people, don't <laughs> leave it to the state to decide. If you, if you want to make sure that your secret love child does not inherit, have a plan. <laughs> yes. Or if you want to make sure your secret love child does inherit, have a plan. <laughs> Leaving your plan to the state It's not many people think, oh, I don't want the state to get the money. It's not so much that the state's taking the money. It's just that the state's directing where they think you'd want your money to go. Mm -hmm. And nine times out of 10, I would say that the state law is not what people would want. A lot of times people don't have good relationships with maybe their siblings, if their siblings were to take or even some of their children or nieces, nephews, or it might fall off to their parents um, who are on nursing home care. I was just going to say, we've had issues where, you know, elderly parents are still alive and one of their adult children who, you know, is of retirement age passes away, but they inherit and might lose nursing home benefits or, you know, housing and things like that because they, you know, got a big inheritance, which, you know, has its pluses and minuses. Now they can afford, you know, different care, but on the flip side, they might've been just fine the way they were. And with a little bit of planning that the status quo could have been kept. And especially for, you know, your parents that might be on some benefits, the smallest amount can kick them off. So they could get $5,000 from you and that will kick them off their benefits. And then they have to reapply again in two weeks because that $5,000 only lasts them two weeks of private paying. And so it really, if there was a plan, it doesn't matter if it's 5,000 or 500,000. Yes, if it was 500,000, they probably could get some better care, you know, but you don't know how much that could be at the time if you don't plan. And so that planning is so crucial, especially if, if you don't have a plan and you don't have kids, you're not married and your parents are still living it's going to your parents and that may not be ideal depending on their situation. Mm -hmm. That's a good time. I think to, to wrap up our celebrity don't do this at home. Yeah. Don't do your estate plan this way. Actually see a qualified estate planning attorney or an elder law attorney to do your estate plan and not follow in the footsteps of a lot of these folks. Um, I encourage you to follow in their footsteps musically scientifically uh you know theatrically but not (laughs) with their estate planning choices and i'll I'll let you wrap it up kendra there is i hope that you've kind of learned some lessons that i think we look at celebrities and think we're not like them you know that would never happen to me because we're we're not in the same boat but when it comes to estate planning you are You know, when it comes to ensuring that your wishes are followed, you're the one that can be empowered and make those decisions. So think about your assets, think about your loved ones, your wishes, 
who should be making those decisions for you and how you want things to pass if something were to happen to you. And take that step in the right direction to have a properly laid out plan to help eliminate some of these issues that some of these celebrities have had because they're everyday issues. Taxes, probate court, those aren't things that are just saved for the celebrities. So I hope you take that into mind and think about your estate planning. And thank you for joining us this evening on Legacy Legal Live on WMEX Boston. 